energy prices have spiked here. I've read about uh, bakeries that have been in operation for a century that have gone out of business because they can't pay the bills for baking anymore. This uh, is going to have a knock-on effect, I'm afraid, in the economy. It remains to be seen it's going to be a long, hard winter. Government has a key role to play. You can't leave it to the private sector. You can't have naked privatization. That mm. leads to profiteering. The money doesn't go back into the system. They don't look after their poorest customers at all. They're simply looking after their shareholders and the greed at the top. The solution, in my view, is really a political one, not so much of an economic. There are things about new energy, looking for alternative supply of gas from the Middle East, from Qatar, from Saudi. But I think these are makeshift solutions, not fundamentally changing the overall picture. So I think this is a very big lesson. Country needs to develop a secure supply of energy sources. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. Joining our discussion on Europe's energy crisis are Harvey Zoden, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and former Vice President of ABC TV Network in New York. Mike Baston, visiting professor at the University of International Business and Economics and senior lecturer at the University of Southampton, England. And John Gon, vice president of research and strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel, who's currently in Beijing. Great to have you all back on the show, gentlemen. So here in China, though many cities are experiencing an Indian summer, producers of uh, electric heating equipment in the country are actually working around the clock to deliver their products to, to overseas clients, especially those in Europe. And some of the producers have seen orders from Europe soar tenfold when compared with a year ago. So let me start with uh, John. Um, what's your first response to the news? Many people here in China actually may be surprised when hearing this. Are you surprised anyway? Well, initially I'm shocked. Then, you know, after a little pause, I, I, I thought about this again. It makes perfect sense. You know, I think what's happening in Europe is, is really a dire situation. People had to find makeshift solutions to prepare for the winter. And now with the, this explosion associated with the Nord Stream pipelines, it's pretty clear that the, it's going to be a very, very cold winter in many parts of Europe. And uh, uh, people there are not going to have the luxury of their whole house or their whole condo uh, to be heated. Uh, and 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 that's why uh, people are you know looking for at least a, a, a warm place uh, for the night uh, and, and and hence the demand for products like this. Um, it's it's certainly you know it's good news for Chinese exporters. Yes. But, uh, but it's a very saddening to see that at, at at this stage. It's very very saddening you know for 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 Europe as as developed and civilized society. You know, like, and, and they're now, you know, dealing with this problem. I mean, this is something that 
in China, you know, we used to deal with in the 1990s, like 30 years ago. Mm. Know, that was a solution for the winter. But, but it's going back to that stage in Europe right now. And then let's turn to our guests in Europe. And Harvey, you're now living in Vienna, Austria. What's the situation there? Have you purchased any, you know, electric uh, heating equipment lately? No, but we're watching our energy consumption very much mm. because energy prices have spiked here. And uh, we need to be very careful. And in some ways, we need to balance our purchases uh, between uh, heating and eating. So uh, it's not a problem for some people, but for many people, they have to reallocate a lot of their uh, budget to heating. Right. So uh, people here are, are quite worried. And uh, what about in Britain, Mike? Similar echo those concerns. People are very, very concerned, very anxious going into the winter. Obviously, we're experiencing the, the colder weather. We, we had a, a couple of heat waves in the summer, as you know here. But the, the, the temperatures returned to normal. It looks like being an extra, a cold winter. The sorts of things people are already doing and talking about is looking at alternatives. So a lot of our neighbors are, uh, are, are getting slow burning uh, log uh, fires and then contraptions that can do something similar. Uh, so we're exchanging messages about where to get the, the cheapest wood from and, uh, and use that to heat and heat just one room and spend more time in one room. So it really is quite dire. It's almost like going back to perhaps I wouldn't say wartime situation, but, mm. but, but it, it really is financially very, very serious, and, and particularly for the poorest. And um, we're getting all sorts of dire reports about children going to school cold, uh, not being fed very well. As one of your panelists just said, there's a choice between eating and, and heating, uh, unfortunately. So it, it's difficult to sort of overstate just how serious, not just the energy crisis, but the economic crisis that the UK now finds itself in related to the the, the, the recent announcements with these unfunded tax cuts, which have really uh, made things a lot worse. Indeed, but uh, it seems um, Mike and uh, Harvey, uh, at least you yourselves haven't been, you know, affected that much, right? Uh, well, no, we have personally. We're, we're I mean, we're, we're, I suppose we are relatively well, well, quite sort of, let's say, comfortable. But our heating bills have, at the moment, they're about two and a half times what they used to be. So that they have gone up considerably. And now we can just about cover that cost. But we, we ourselves, are making cutbacks elsewhere, uh, where discretionary spending was things like nice things that you post don't actually need, you know, things like holidays and extra holidays and extra trips and travel. We're having to look very, very closely at that and not doing as much as we'd like to. So we are in a, a relatively fortunate position, but it certainly has impacted on us most definitely. Mike, do you have any idea uh, what percentage of the population um, has been affected so far or severely? It's difficult to put a, a percentage. I would say everybody's been affected, uh -huh. the, the poorest most definitely. So I would say, we, I mean, the recent survey 
very chilling survey amongst yeah, even professional families was that eight out of ten expect to visit food banks over the winter. The food banks are repositories of you know, donations of typically tinned food, food that lasts a long time, sort of free food for those that really are hard up. And it's really even relatively middle-class families that are now turning to donations and handouts. So that that percentage, I I should say, is very, very high. And unfortunately, we don't have a government that many are arguing is the government that are really addressing this at all and and haven't really tried to, to help out those most needy. What they've done so far is just hand out massive tax cuts to the wealthiest in the economy, which is as the IMF has just said, stoking inequality further. Mm. And uh, what's the situation uh, in in Austria, uh, Harvey? Which group of people and what industries have been most severely hit? Well, I think uh, Austria is a, a kind of welfare state, and so it takes care of its citizens quite well. And just an interesting piece of history that 120 years ago, Vienna uh, was not only known for uh, music uh, and culture, it was also called Red Vienna for its socialist orientation. And part of that legacy exists today uh, in Vienna is that the government owns or controls about a quarter million housing units for its two million inhabitants, and they're very well built. So I live in one of those units. And so I don't worry that much about energy, but uh, people in private houses uh, are uh, having to see their energy bills spike to up to 10 times more Mm. than before. So it's uh, very difficult here. And you can see that uh, there are more empty storefronts, especially bakeries and other labor intensive industries. I've read about uh, bakeries that have been in operation for a century that have gone out of business because they can't pay the bills for baking anymore. This uh, is going to have a knock-on effect, I'm afraid, in the economy here in this, even this country. Can I just jump in there, sure. Harvey? Sure. That's very interesting. You, you've jogged my memory. Many local businesses are, are suffering the same fate. Every night on the news, we see a range of businesses from bakeries to butchers, typically small retailers, who really have just gone under. I mean, the government have offered some sort of lifeline, but not a, a great lifeline. And also the point you make about socialist Vienna and, and the government and government ownership and, and looking after and, and not being obviously as profit-oriented, that's gone here where the energy sector is 100% privately owned uh, and has been for a long time. So again, that's contributed to this this uh, this greed and the government really do not have the sort of control. In fact, the opposition Labour Party are calling for some sort of temporary renationalisation of, of parts of the energy sector to bring them back in line with a, a more, let's say, a more humane approach and a less profit at all costs approach. So, so I echo those points uh, most definitely. Mm, got a maybe a silly question, but uh, Harvey, you mentioned a bakery. I'm wondering if people, you know, have to plow through the forests for for firewood. Uh, I, I think more people are doing that, yeah, because uh, the price of wood pellets, for example, have also gone through the roof. So this is not just limited to uh, uh, 
energy bills for people's uh, individual houses or businesses, but throughout the economy, everything is affected. So the uh, inflation rate here uh, in Vienna and in Austria is about 10%. And so people are having to uh, make choices that they haven't had to make for a long time. Maybe uh, since uh, the end of uh, World War II and the recovery from it. So it's a very dire uh, situation. And I have to say that we've suffered from COVID for so many years, a couple years now. And when you add on this, uh, the results of the, the war in Ukraine and its uh, contribution to inflation, this is not only hurting the population, it's hurting political leaders because they're in a no-win situation. I mean, it's just not possible to come up with the right answer here. And so what happens? The population is getting more and more pissed off. They're pissed off about COVID and getting COVID fatigue. Now they're going to be getting inflation fatigue. So Mm. it's almost uh, another illness that politicians will have to face. And as you can see in elections, like in Italy uh, last week, that uh, these politicians are paying the consequences. Right. Then people in which country are most pissed off, like um, Austria or, or Britain? or I heard uh, Britain was the hardest hit. Most definitely. If, if well, let Mike, Mike should talk in. about that. Uh, yeah, of course I can. Analysts are saying that most definitely that the UK economy has been the hardest hit. I mean, there are several whammies here, several blows. Obviously, the energy crisis, the war with Ukraine, Brexit hasn't helped, I have to say, as well. Uh, and also the political situation here is very unstable. The current government is really lurching from one sort of leadership to another. People are already suggesting that uh, the current prime minister, who's been in post for about two minutes, Liz Truss, and her uh, hapless chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, their days are numbered. Their annual conference is about to start with a lot of internal bickering. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. The markets are very uncertain. Moody's is looking to downgrade the UK's credit rating. Uh, so the energy crisis is, is just one factor that has made uh, life in the UK at the moment very, very challenging and, and very, very different. And again, it's hard to, it's difficult to, to actually understand just what we've been through because as as, as Harvey said, COVID was challenging enough, and, and many people over the summer were saying this is the first sort of post-COVID summer. It really does feel like we've got our freedom back. You know, we we can go here, there, and everywhere. One or two people are still uh, wearing masks. We still need booster jabs. We've got to be careful, but it does look touch wood finally that we're sort of out of the woods, so to speak, and then here we go. Mm. Uh, so, yes, we have been out of it. People are talking about the UK as the new Italy, the new sort of unstable... But things can't uh, be uh, that uh, bad, uh, right? I, I understand the British... The table. Right, I understand the British government so, has taken some measures, including, you know, the, the £400 discount for energy bills introduced by... Yeah. The so previous government. You're right, you make, and I should make that point. Yes, they have, they have, and they have capped prices, and they are looking very, very carefully mm-hmm. at intervening and limiting the profits that the energy sector can make. 
most definitely, but many would argue it hasn't really been targeted at the poorest, and it's not, you know, too little, too late. It has been some sort of help. I think they were pushed into that. It's against their nature to actually intervene. Um, and as your panelists said, a government that really cares and actually takes ownership of this sector. Many people were very, very critical when the energy sector was privatised quite some years ago, sold off too cheaply, too recklessly, and that those, that those chickens are coming home to roost. You're saying it's too too late, too little, but isn't there anything... I think it's difficult. The government doesn't have much room to, to manoeuvre. I mean, the borrowing, borrowing is, is huge, borrowing because of COVID and, and the furlough and the pain for people to, to keep their jobs. Uh, the eat-out to help out the fiasco that the previous chancellor introduced last summer that sent us back into an economic downward spiral so that they don't really have a lot of the coffers to actually throw at this. And uh, John has been sitting idle for quite a while because it seems that it um, has little to do with you at this moment. But from your perspective as an outsider, John, um, have you found any measures uh, taken by any European government incomprehensible to you or too little well, too late? I, I think, yeah, well, I think they're in a very difficult situation. Uh, I think their policy space is very much constrained. Um, I think ultimately um, the most important reason is indeed you know, this ongoing war in Ukraine mm. uh, and, and the, the set of uh, sanctions associated with that. So I think um, the, the solution, in my view, is, is really a political one, not so much of an economic You know, we need to have peace in Ukraine, to have these international uh, commodity markets restored, uh, to have renewed uh, supply of energy to Europe from Russia. You know, these are the things that can address the set of problems currently unfolding in Europe right now. I, uh, I don't see any other alternative. I mean, it, it, there are things about uh, new energy, looking for alternative supply of gas from the Middle East, from Qatar, from Saudi. But, but I think these are makeshift solutions, not fundamentally changing the overall picture. And, and some of them solutions are at least midterm to long-term in nature. So they're not going to be helpful anytime soon. So um, I don't see any other, you know, really... Uh, good policy instruments uh, that can be applied. I, I think you know, people in Europe and politicians in Europe are clever enough to must have thought of something if there is something exists. Uh, but there's nothing around at this point. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You're listening to the Chat Lounge, and we're talking about the cold truth about Europe's energy crisis. Harvey, what's your take? Do you think uh, there is no other choice except uh, political ones? Well, I uh, I think uh, that uh, people can do a lot, conserve energy, and uh, that will help uh, alleviate some, but uh, not most, of the problems. So. Mm. Self-help is certainly something. So people are going to have to be used to turning down their thermostats. People are going to have to maybe use electric uh, blankets that use uh, less energy. And 
maybe people are having to uh, maybe consume less food in a sense too, because the that food prices are being driven up by the inflation. So it's kind of a perfect storm, unfortunately, mm-hmm. at the moment. Uh, but the key generator of all this, I believe, is what's been said already. And that is uh, the special military operation in Ukraine. We need peace there uh, as soon as possible. I think after that happens, that the inflation uh, will go down. uh, Energy prices, which are driving the inflation, will go down. So unfortunately, though, there doesn't seem to be any end in sight to that conflict. So that's really the most single source that needs to be addressed. I agree with that. One policy initiative that that you might want to think about and has been put forward again by the opposition party in this country, Mm. uh, a temporary sort of fix to generate uh, money to throw at this is a windfall tax. A windfall tax, a one-off swipe the profits that the energy sector, particularly the oil companies have been making in recent years and to use that to support poorer families in in helping them with their energy bills. This is something that the the Labour government did when Blair came into power in 1998, the windfall tax on BT, on technology sector, and used that to good effect. So I don't know whether that's something others or the panellists might think is something that is necessary so that this this idea that these company energy sector have been profiteering, they've done far too well, uh, and some of that money needs to be ploughed back, and it won't be ploughed back by themselves uh, whilst they're they're privately run. Given the geopolitical tensions, you know, between the majority of uh, EU countries and Russia, which is the EU's major supplier, of course, um, over the past few days, um, the Nord Stream pipelines exploded. So. What's waiting ahead for the block this winter, Harvey? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, uh, this is concerning about the Nord Stream pipeline because uh, sabotage is uh, strongly suspected but not yet proven. And that uh, means that this conflict is taking a further ugly turn. So about this winter... It's not going to be as bad as it could have been, because when the handwriting was on the wall at the beginning of the year, many governments started to top up their uh, energy supply, even getting gas from Russia before certain prohibitions went into effect. So I believe that this winter is going to be manageable, not a warm winter, but manageable. But if the the special military operation continues another year, a year from now, if we're talking, I think that Europe and many other parts of the world are going to be in deep trouble because the energy sources will not have all been replaced, even though all the countries are scurrying around to find new additional energy sources. Mm. So in Europe, we'll, we'll be in big trouble. Countries like China... Not so much because China has a robust options of many different kinds of energy that uh, your country has been developing. Mike, do you think it's manageable? I, I think I'd like to think I'm the eternal optimist, and then I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take a positive view, and uh. we can see a way forward. I'm very, very 
concerned. Uh, I think you know, the UK are in a position where there's, there's huge reliance on, in effect, on Russia, uh, and that situation in Ukraine doesn't seem to be heading towards some sort of solution. So that, that could drag on and on. Uh, I'm not sure if that's really going to be resolved definitively very soon. Uh, the, the UK has positioned itself, has marginalised itself in, in Europe, uh, most definitely, you know, not part of the single European market. That will never to be have some sort of knock-on effect when it comes to working together with our European partners. So it remains to be seen. It's going to be a long, hard winter. We, we need a change of government. We need a change of approach. And uh, that, again, is not something that it is on the... John, what's your evaluation over this? I, I, I generally concur with that. I think, again, I want to say that um, the war needs to stop. If there's no peace, there'll be no economic recovery in Europe. You know, at the end of the day, due to the uh, energy supply structure in Europe, and as a matter of fact, the, the entire world as well, mm. um, I think the European side uh, needs to sit down and, and work out some kind of a solution with the Russians. If this war keeps on dragging the European economy, it's just going to be, um, it's just not going to be a good picture. You know, it's not, I think it's more than just about this very difficult winter. Moving forward, you know, you look at the, the capital exodus from Europe right now, look at the, you know, the production and, and manufacturing situation in Germany, for example. Mm. Um, this is a, you know, we've never seen this before for such a you know, advancedly uh, developed country uh, that has come to this stage. I think Harvey talk about even a bakery cannot even survive. This is unprecedented. So um, even after the winter, if this work still goes on, uh, I don't see the picture in Europe, European economy is going to undergo any positive change anytime soon. Mm. You just mentioned the exodus of capital, especially. I think it's energy-intensive um, sectors. My next question is, uh, what irreversible or long-term impacts will this energy crisis likely have on Europe? Uh, Harvey? Uh, I think there's a plus and minus side to this. On the plus side, I think it's going to spur Europe on more to online, more renewables. I was in Germany a week ago and amazed uh, to see the sheer number of solar farms. And when you add to that Germany's extensive push on heat pumps to provide energy efficient heat in the winter and in the summer, and a renewed, albeit reluctant, focus on nuclear energy and temporary use of coal, there's no question that Europe uh, and the world's effort to, to, uh, campaign, to contain carbon neutrality are going to be harmed. But these, uh, this is a sort, a sh- hopefully a short-term solution, a Band-Aid on a situation. And so I believe that that's the plus side. On the negative side, it's going to take time 
for European countries, especially ones less rich than Germany, to come up to speed with a new renewable infrastructure and so on. So I think it's a good news, bad news story. But the silver lining is that we all have gotten attention to the situation that we can't put all our energy eggs in one basket. Mm. And you remind me of, my, of one of my friends who who's now living in Brussels. Um, she told me that she saw her neighbor installing solar panels on, on top of the roof. I'm wondering how, how popular is it, or it is in, in European countries right now, Harvey? It's more and more popular. And some governments actually pay subsidies to people to put them in. And I think Germany is one of them. And I was really uh, amazed to see on the top of very old houses, some hundreds of years old, solar panels. And also to see in the middle of uh, agricultural land, solar arrays. So I think this mm. is popular. I think uh, governments can encourage the use by paying subsidy and using tax policy for social engineering. Uh, what's happened in uh, Brussels or Belgium is they've canceled uh, the subsidies because they believe that people will automatically take that solution to install you know, solar panels themselves without having to be subsidized. What's the situation in well, uh, Britain? Yeah, very similar. Interesting, you made that point, and, and Harvey's point as well. The the subsidy would would seem to be, let's say, very attractive, maybe yeah. too attractive. Going back a few years, and there was a bit of a rush, uh, and our neighbours have them. We're being told we should have them. Our gardens south facing, so we'll get more sun. And our neighbours are always boasting about how their showers are all paid for under solar panels. But the, the, the subsidy has, I don't, I don't quite remember, I don't think it's gone completely, but it, it's far less attractive. So it's very much a long-term investment. So mm. it's finally sort of tens of thousands of pounds. That will most definitely be very, very uh, attractive in terms of long-term payback. But, but again, here we are in, the, in the, this sort of economic crisis where people, you know, finding that money alone will be difficult and finding it looking in the long term will be difficult. So I think, once again, perhaps the government could step in and somehow through taxation, taxing the, the better off, find a greater subsidy to expedite this process. And I agree with the, the silver lining that I think it was Harvey mentioned that the silver lining is perhaps it will really focus attention on real change and accelerate investment in renewable energies. Most, most genuinely, there's a lot of talk about this, mm. a lot of talk about this, but perhaps not enough action. And perhaps that action now has to happen. There is no choice. Mm. But on the downside, some people are warning that this um, energy crisis may change Europe forever. Europe may, may enter a new era of disindustrialization. Do you share the same concern, Mike? You mean deindustrialization? Right. Yeah. That's been, yes, people are talking about that. Again, being the eternal optimist, I think that the, the positives will outweigh the negatives coming out of this energy crisis. I think it will lead to a realization that 
company, not just companies, but countries across across Europe need to work together even better. They need to be integrated even more, so sort of integrated energy policy across Europe um, to, again, accelerate the investment and the progress with renewable energy via the use of digital technology. So this digitized energy plan that's being talked about, I think, is very, very good news. So I'm not that negative. I think it will lead perhaps in the long term, the longer term, to mm. a more integrated, a more united approach, which is the way forward. We we do have some alarm bells ringing with some quite sort of far-right candidates reaching positions of power in Europe. Uh, and again, most would agree we have quite a, uh, an extreme right-wing government here. But, but I think in the longer term, the common sense will win out. And I'm very positive that the integration and working together will be seen as the way forward, led by the German economic model. Mm. John, are you optimistic as well? Uh, you, you mentioned this exodus of um, capital, and some people say, you know, certain kind of industries are actually siphoned, or capital siphoned away from Europe and to the United States, such as, um, you know, steelmakers and fertilizer producers. They're shifting their operations to the States. Is it a consequence Europe can bear? Well, no, first of all, let me say that there are certain parts of Europe that are already very much deindustrialized. The economy is more towards uh, service-oriented industries anyway, in the first place. For example, in, in Greece, uh, you know, it's a, it's a country that doesn't have much manufacturing. It's very much tourism-driven. Um, and, and, and there are other countries like that. So, so I think um, it, it's okay to have an economy, overall economy, I'm talking about the entire European Union economy, uh, to be uh, having a, a, a little bit of percentage uh, decrease in its manufacturing sector. You know, th- this is something that has already happened in, in Europe, in, in, in the United States. Mm. So uh, so I, I don't think it's, it's it's much of a, you know, great concern here. Now, having said that, I think the issue about uh, capital moving out of Europe to the United States, it, it's not just going to the United States, actually. I mean, you look at the foreign direct investment statistics in China, uh, for the last uh, few months, there are indications that uh, uh, some of the added additional investments are actually indeed coming from Europe here in China. So um, it's a broad phenomenon and uh, probably um, it, it will continue for a bit of a more time given that the energy supply picture in, in Europe is not going to be fundamentally changed anytime soon. Um, but this uh, energy crisis is actually accelerating that process, right? Uh, yeah, sure, of course. Uh, you know, manufacturing fundamentally relies on electricity, on energy supply. So without a security, a secure supply of that, without a affordable uh, and secure supply of that, uh, it's very difficult for the manufacturing sector to... Uh, to, to sustain and to stay. So uh, capital is going to seek an alternative. And what do you see as the biggest lesson that can be drawn from this uh, energy crisis in Europe? To all of you, uh, maybe Harvey first? Sure. I think that it means that every country 
is interconnected to every other country. And because of that, uh, you can't just uh, compartmentalize this problem with Europe in one basket and America in another and mm. China in another. We're all we're all in this together and uh, we should be working together. So Mike, Mike had mentioned this uh, possibility of this uh, digitized energy system yeah. of the EU. I don't know what that is, but to me, it sounds like uh, it sounds kind of like uh, the concept of metaverse. But if it means that we're going to use AI to learn from past successes and mistakes, it's a must. But beyond that, one of the things that uh, I do like in the EU's plan is to focus on the ICT sector, information and communications technology, because energy consumption by components of uh, global digital infrastructure are expected to grow by 50% in the next eight years. But what's self-defeating in the EU plan is to continue to demonize Chinese innovators in the sector like Huawei because of pressure from the U.S. So just as the Soviet Union joined with the U.S. to defeat the ancient scourge of smallpox during the height of the Cold War, China, the U.S., the EU, the rest of the world should be addressing these existential challenges that we face and not zero-summing them out, which we're doing now. I think that that's a recipe for disaster. Mm, and uh, Mike, maybe you can explain this uh... yeah digitalization plan I, a little bit first. I, I will, and I'll come on to that very quickly, but one thing I want to do, uh, one, one big learning point, and I'm afraid I probably will still be lost on a lot of people, um, is the role of government, mm. I think. Not, not just working across governments, across, across European governments, but there has to be an acceptance be a, yeah, an unequivocal acceptance that we're certainly industry concerned and energy is one, government has a key role to play. You can't leave it to the private sector. You can't have naked privatization and private companies running wild, private oil companies, the energy sector. That has contributed to this crisis. That leads to profiteering. The money doesn't go back into the system. They don't look after their poorest customers at all. They're simply looking after their shareholders and the greed at the top. So I think that has to be a realization and that governments need to accept. And that's a real positive on the China side, where the Chinese government plays a crucial role in working with the private sector. So that public-private partnership has to be really thought through much more and, and put in practice, um, the digitization of most industries is something that is very, very much um, apparent and with us, the power of digital technology. So basically what the digitization of the, the energy sector and what governments are talking about here is basically much more transparency, much more visibility of mm. information, so a much, much clearer picture through digital technology of the situation. You, you talked about the countries that are the hardest hit, why are they, what can be done there. Mm. So digital technology with big data will provide a much clearer picture and allow that, that industry across countries to be managed much, much more transparently, transparently, effectively, 
uh, and crisis management is not something that should happen with a better picture and more foresight ahead. So I think, again, that's another perhaps silver lining. It's a very, very important phrase. But for me, fundamentally, and many people have been arguing about this, the government in this country, the, 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 the phrase the nanny state is, is often trotted out. Government has a key, very positive role to play with the private sector, with energy in particular. It's not the same as selling cars, selling chocolate bars, you know, private sector, fine. Let them mm. run away with that, not with energy. Yeah, and I think this uh, digitalization plan is a, also aimed for a better coordination or policy coordination between governments. Coordination, agility, visibility. Well, we, we talk about this uh, a lot with the latest digital technology. So I'm sure people are familiar with blockchain technology mm. and transparency of supply chains and absolute digital footprint that is is that, that, that is um, irremovable. That, that I think this this is something, again, but that needs investment and accelerated investment, so hopefully that will be a, another positive coming out of this. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we're talking about the cold truth about Europe's energy crisis. Apart from capital, do you see any challenges lying ahead for this plan to be implemented as scheduled? Mike? I think the key challenge is actually the the coordination across countries and and a a tighter European network of companies. I think the French, I think Macron's put forward the idea of some sort of European network, um, economic network of countries that's not necessarily involving countries in the single European market. Countries are there's rich and poor in Europe. Uh, and, and, and do they really help each other as much as they should? If you look at Northern Europe, Southern Europe, there's a big gap. Obviously, if you look at Germany compared with Greece and Italy. So I think the biggest challenge is that the richer countries have to accept they've probably got to do a bit more and they've got to help the poorer countries, which will in turn help themselves and help their economies continue to grow. So I think that's that definitely will take a lot of um, argument, discussion, or any compromise. And uh, we still got a John to answer this. Um, the biggest lesson we can learn from the energy crisis in Europe, John? Yeah, I think the biggest lesson is with respect to the safety and security issue. Um, it's, uh, you know, energy is, is fundamental to any economy. Mm. Uh, the, the economy cannot run without a secure energy supply. And it's a fact that China relies heavily on the imports of a lot of raw materials, uh, including coal, um, and oil and gas. Uh, and I think this is a very big lesson, particularly against the, the news that, uh, you know, this, this explosion associated with the Nord Stream pipeline project. So I think this is a very big lesson. Uh, the country needs to develop a secure supply of uh, energy sources. Some of them are alternative new energy sources. Some of them are, you know, the traditional energy sources, but have to be acquiring a uh, safe and secure way move, moving forward. Uh, I think today's China is facing a entirely different 
international environment, political environment, foreign policy environment. Uh, and I think the, the prospect of uh, China's own uh, supply network of these key raw materials uh, being sabotaged, being blackmailed, being um, under attack, it's not really a far-fetched imagination anymore. I think it's for real, uh, and, and it could happen. So uh, I think uh, you know the government needs to prepare for that, and at least in terms of uh, planning and, and strategy for me, uh, you know that perspective has to be taken into account. Mm. Uh, and I think that you know the government must have thought about this and taken this into consideration already. Do you think we need to get ourselves some uh, electric heating devices just in case? Say that again? Uh, I didn't quite catch that. Yeah, you know, Chinese people always say prepare for danger in times of safety. So I'm wondering if we ourselves need to get uh, some electric heating devices just in case. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think so at this point. I think, you know, there's uh, enough... Uh, security at this point, uh, at this moment. But I think, um, and I hope now we're not going to get to that stage. It, mm. it's, it's, it's pathetic if we're, you know, getting to that stage. But uh, I think we need to um, plan for that at least. Uh, you know, it's something that could happen if, you know, our relationship with, for example, the United States keeps worsening. So, um, um, you know, uh, you know, it's always saying, right? You know, you plan for the worst. So uh, we hope we're not get there, but mm. uh, it's something I have to be keeping in mind. Right. And Harvey, from your perspective, uh, what's the likelihood of China encountering an energy crisis like like the one Europe is having right now? You know, in the foreseeable I, future. Uh huh. I think China is well positioned. Look, your country has this great uh, history of thousands of years, and we know about the great inventions like paper and gunpowder or silk. But another invention that China had was called Kong beds. These are beds that uh, heated uh, people's living spaces and also <laughs> were used for cooking and things like that. So I uh, am a great fan of uh, Chinese ingenuity. And so I think uh, that uh, China will find a solution if one's going to be necessary. But frankly, I don't think, uh, like John said, that uh, China's going to need this. Because in your system of government using uh, five-year plans, choosing the best leaders uh, and developing them uh, through increasing responsibility, uh, China has put itself in an enviable position. And that is you have the most advanced and the most diverse energy paradigm. You're the global leader in renewable energy and solar, wind, water, and even coming uh, on core, online hydrogen. You have nuclear energy, you have conventional energy like coal plants. And I'd say while there might be a few isolated outages Massive energy shortages won't happen in China. And yet, even with the temporary reliance on carbon fuels uh, during this crisis, China is still on course to meet its 2030 and its 2060 Paris climate goals on time and probably earlier. So I don't think Chinese people should go out and buy uh, electric blankets or, or Kong beds anytime soon. 
and Mike, do you see、uh, the capability of China is so strong if,、yeah. in the event of an extreme situation? <laughs> I think it's unlikely. I echo the again the comments made by the other panelists. I think one thing to add is, whilst we see younger generations are.、Um, A little bit more, sort of, a bit less thrifty, a bit less frugal,、um, obviously a bit more carefree.、Uh, younger generation, I think the traditional values of you know, frugality、uh, and, and basically preparing and, and saving and, and, and being there in worst-case scenarios, I think still resides, and that's a big difference with the UK as well. I think people. You know, haven't set aside sort of savings in terms of extra heating bills and, and extra costs generally. I know the Chinese,、uh, I know Chinese families almost certainly have done and will continue to do so. So I think that's another factor. So I think it's highly unlikely.、Uh, and in addition, you have a government that is really working with. Obviously, the Chinese economy is modernising. It's integrating internationally, globally. Uh, and there's much bigger space for the private sector, which is a good thing, by the way. I believe in the private sector, but there's very, very、uh, firm government guidance and control that, as well, that will will not allow the sort of the, the private sector to run away with things as they have done in the UK. Seems、um, all of you are very confident at China's ability in handling、um, such a. Uh, an energy crisis, or not put itself in such a crisis. But、uh, John, my last question is: Are there any visible weak links in China's energy security that need to be fixed? Well, immediately I'm thinking about the entire supply chain、mm. uh, associated with the the alternative energy. Uh, sources, uh, uh, for example, there are certain. I mean, we really have to think about every little、uh, link in that supply chain. I mean, in terms of the a little component in the equipment that is being used, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, we have experienced this problem, the choke points issue, right? I mean, the technology choke points.、Um, for example, in the semiconductor industry,、uh, there are those choke points that are very much subject to.、Um, Washington's control—they、uh, are cutting off our、uh, supply. And I'm asking the same question: in our entire supply chain associated with the、uh, alternative energies, are there similar phenomena here? I think you know these are the things that I would be thinking about if I'm in a government planning seat. Other than that, I think、um, you know if you look at the coal, look at the oil and the gas, I think we're relatively in the Good position. Russia, Saudi,、uh, you know, these are pretty reliable suppliers. So,、mm-hmm. so I think you know these、uh, these aspects. You know, I think I'm I'm pretty comfortable with. But、uh, I keep thinking about the、uh, the technology issues uh, in the uh, uh, alternative energy sector. Mike, your take here. I think there are there are always going to be possible weaknesses and, and the weak links. I think with China, well, I mean, talked about quite recently in, in, in Southwest China. I, I think the weather. I mean, obviously there, there can be severe changes in weather now with global warming. So if there is a shortfall in rain,、uh, most definitely 
and and, and if the, the 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 cold winters are even colder and more biting, then that will put pressure most definitely. I mean, it's, it's a very very large country with a large and growing population, but what sort of control? Can, you know, what, what allowance can you make for that? One thing. Again, a positive thing is that the Chinese government for many, many years has invested so much more in renewable energy, clean energy, green energy, and this green environment is a very real part of their, again, government-led economic plan, which we don't see. Again, I'm afraid this is a very, very important point to make again mm. in the UK and elsewhere. It seemed to be left to the green environment. The next step is really left to the private sector in terms of innovation and choice and competition but as we know that doesn't necessarily work and if it does it works after a fashion so uh, I think that the the extremes of weather could could, uh, really present challenges in China. And uh, Harvey we know that uh, you have um, every confidence in the Chinese government but if you have to name one weak link in China's energy security what would it be? Uh, Yeah I I think I think John and Mike covered this uh, quite well. I think that the weather is something China can't yet control, but it's working on it. And so, yeah, we did see this problem in Sichuan, uh, but I think this is temporary. And I have confidence in the Chinese system of decision-making because it anticipates problems and addresses them uh, quite well. And I don't think that's true of many other countries. So to me, it's only the weather, but I think that uh, that's being studied and will probably be controlled to some extent in the not too distant future. And like they say, don't have that cloak to make when it begins to rain. And as John said, um, prepare for the worst. And on that note, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Harvey Zoden, Senior Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization and former Vice President of ABC TV Network in New York, Mike Bastin, China Observer and Senior Lecturer at the University of Southampton, and John Gon, Vice President of Research and Strategy at the University of International Business and Economics, Israel for your time and insightful views and analysis. Please feel free to leave a review for us, either on the topic or on the show. And subscribe to the Chat Lounge wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tuyun, thank you for being with us. We'll chat soon. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.